This is part two of the April-May-June 2022 Criminal Law Update CLE. The written material for part two is the May 2022 Criminal Law Reversal Report. First case is People v. Simon, pages four and five. It deals with the application of new case law, which comes down while a defendant's appeal is pending, and the topic is youthful offender status. Third Department, noting that the relevant law was announced after defendant's sentencing, but while the appeal was pending, held that county court's failure to consider whether defendant should be afforded youthful offender status required vacation of the sentence and remittal for resentencing. The court said, there's no dispute that Rudolph, that's uh, Court of Appeals case 21 New York 2nd at page 499, which was decided after defendant was sentenced, but before the appellate process was complete, required county court to make a determination as to whether defendant as an eligible youth should be adjudicated a youthful offender, notwithstanding that no request was made for that treatment. And it cites criminal procedure law 720.20 subdivision one. Whether to grant youthful offender status lies within the discretion of the sentencing court it cannot be dispensed with through the plea bargaining process. Although this court is vested with the broad plenary power to modify a sentence in the interest of justice and, if warranted, exercise our power to adjudicate a defendant a youthful offender, we decline defendant's invitation to do so here in the complete absence of any consideration by the sentencing court, either summarily or otherwise, as to whether defendant should be adjudicated a youthful offender. We deem it appropriate to remit the matter to permit county court the opportunity to make the initial discretionary determination whether youthful offender status is warranted after the parties fully set forth their positions for and against such treatment. Without expressing any opinion as to whether youthful offender adjudication should be afforded the defendant, in the event that county court grants such status upon remittal, which would result in the court imposing a lower sentence than the parties negotiated, the people must be given an opportunity to withdraw consent to the plea bargain. So the takeaway here, even if the requirement that youthful offender status be considered for all potentially eligible defendants was not in force when a defendant was sentenced, if the decision imposing the requirement, here it was People versus Rudolph, came down before defendant's appellate process was complete, defendant is entitled to resentencing applying the new law. Next is People v. Buyund, B-U-Y-U-N-D, pages six and seven. It illustrates the difference in appellate authority between the appellate division and the Court of Appeals. The second department upon remittal from the Court of Appeals, adhered to its prior decision finding defendant's certification as a sex offender unlawful. The Court of Appeals ruled that sex offender certification is not part of a sentence and therefore is not covered by an exception to the preservation requirement. But because the appellate division, unlike the Court of Appeals, has interest of justice jurisdiction, the prior decision was upheld in the interest of justice by the second department despite a lack of preservation. The court wrote, in an opinion dated November 23, 2021, 
the Court of Appeals concluded that sex offender certification is not part of a defendant's sentence, and a contention regarding sex offender certification does not fall within the exception to the preservation rule for challenges to unlawful sentences. The Court of Appeals noted that although it, it does not have interest of justice jurisdiction to review unpreserved issues, the appellate division may have authority to take corrective action in the interest of justice based upon defendant's unpreserved challenge to the legality of his certification as a sex offender. The Court of Appeals remitted the matter to this court, that, that's the second department, for further proceedings. We now reach the defendant's unpreserved contention in the exercise of our interest of justice jurisdiction. For the reasons stated in our prior opinion and order, the defendant's certification as a sex offender was unlawful. So the takeaway here, the Court of Appeals does not have interest of justice jurisdiction there and therefore cannot consider appellate issues that are not preserved. The appellate division can invoke interest of justice jurisdiction to consider unpreserved appellate issues. Here the issue was the validity of the sex offender certification for the defendant. Because the sex offender certification is not part of a sentence, the Court of Appeals couldn't hear the case under the exception to, to the preservation requirement for illegal sentences, but it, it sent the matter back down to the Second Department because the Second Department has interest of justice jurisdiction which allows it to consider unpreserved issues. At this point I am inserting the first verification code for this April-May-June 2022 criminal law update CLE. The first verification code is sentence. Again, the first verification code to be placed on your attorney affirmation for this April-May-June 2022 criminal law update CLE is sentence. Next is Madigan versus Berkeley Capital. It's a civil case, but it deals with criminal contempt. The Second Department, modifying Supreme Court, held the plaintiff's counsel should have been found in criminal contempt for issuing subpoenas in defiance of Supreme Court's order staying any further action in the case. The court wrote, in contrast to civil contempt, because the purpose of criminal contempt is to vindicate the authority of the court, no showing of prejudice is required. Allegations of willful disobedience of a proper judicial order strike at the core of the judicial process and implicate weighty public and institutional concerns regarding the integrity of and the respect for judicial orders. Notwithstanding the court's order, the plaintiff's counsel issued subpoenas on six separate occasions. When Supreme Court reiterated the terms of the stay, both via interim relief granted in the order to show cause and in, and in a separate order, the plaintiff's counsel did not desist, but instead served more, four more subpoenas and moved to compel the production of subpoenaed documents. This conduct evidences a lack of respect for judicial orders and warranted holding the plaintiff's counsel in criminal contempt. Under the circumstances, we deem the statutory maximum sanction of $1,000 per offense warranted and impose a total sanction of $10,000. So the takeaway here, criminal contempt 
seeks to vindicate the authority of the court. Therefore, no showing of prejudice on the other, on the other party is required. Here, plaintiff's counsel issued subpoenas in defiance of an order of the court. A $10,000 sanction for criminal contempt was imposed on the attorney by the appellate court. Next is People v. Smith on pages 8 and 9. It's a court of appeals case which reversed the Fourth Department without explanation. The Fourth Department had reversed defendant's conviction on the ground defendant wasn't present during a sidebar conference concerning the bias of a prospective juror. Because the Court of Appeals didn't give the reasons for its reversal, I'm including here a description of what happened uh, from the Fourth Department decision. Again, this is from the Fourth Department decision, which was reversed by the Court of Appeals. A prospective juror was peremptorily excused by defendant's counsel, and during a sidebar conference at which defendant was not present, that juror was questioned to search out her bias, hostility, or predisposition to believe or discredit the testimony of potential witnesses. Consequently, we conclude that absence a knowing and voluntary waiver by defendant of his right to be present at that sidebar conference, his conviction cannot stand. The only evidence in the record concerning a waiver consists of a conversation between the court, defendant's counsel, and co-defendant's counsel that occurred after the prospective juror was excused, in which co-defendant's counsel indicated that he had just discussed with co-defendant the right to approach the bench during such conferences, and defendant's counsel merely assented. Inasmuch as the dis dis discussion was vague and prospective, and there is no indication defendant or defendant's counsel were waiving defendant's rights retrospectively, that conversation is insufficient to establish defendant waived those rights concerning the questioning of the juror at issue. We therefore reverse the judgment of conviction and grant a new trial. Now again, that was from the Fourth Department ruling, and the Court of Appeals reversed that without explanation. So the takeaway here, the Fourth Department had reversed defendant's convictions on the ground defendant was not present at a sidebar conference when the bias of a prospective juror was discussed, and here the Court of Appeals reversed without explanation and sent the case back to the Fourth Department for consideration of the other issues raised on appeal. Next is matter of Proctor on pages 9 and 10. It's an inmate disciplinary hearing. The Third Department found that the inmates' due process rights had been violated. The Third Department, annulling the petitioner inmates' misbehavior determination, held that the petitioner was denied due process by not being given the opportunity to see the video of the incident. The court wrote, An incarcerated individual should be allowed to call witnesses and present documentary evidence of his or her defense in his or her defense when permitting him or her to do so will not be unduly hazardous to institutional safety or correctional goals. The videotaped incident occurred while petitioner was incarcerated at a different facility. The hearing officer informed petitioner that due to the uh, format of the video, it could not be played in the hearing room and could only be played on equipment located in a secure area of the facility from which petitioner was barred. The hearing officer said that he had viewed the video in the secure area and he described what he believed the video depicted. 
Petitioner objected, arguing that he was being prevented from providing exculpatory testimony as to what occurred in the video. The hearing officer denied the objection, stating that the video speaks for itself and the record reflects that he relied in part on the video in reaching the, term the determination of guilt. Contrary to respondent's contention, the explanation that the only video equipment capable of playing the video was in a secure area without any apparent attempt to either move the equipment or find other equipment capable of playing the video for petitioner did not articulate institutional safety or correctional goals sufficient to justify denying petitioner's right to reply to evidence against him. The fact that petitioner may have seen the video at his former facility during a prior hearing on these charges before a different hearing officer, a hearing that resulted in a determination that was administratively reversed, does not excuse the denial of petitioner's right to view the video during the new hearing and offer exculpatory testimony as to its contents. As to the remedy, we conclude that a new hearing, not expungement, is appropriate. So the takeaway here, prison inmates charged with misbehavior have due process rights. Here the petitioner inmate was entitled to see the video which allegedly depicted the charged misbehavior, the determination was annulled, and a new hearing was ordered. Next is Matter of Headley, pages 10 and 11. It's another inmate disciplinary um, action, and it also deals with the inmate's right to due process. The third department confirmed the determination finding petitioner inmate guilty of urging others to participate in a demonstration at the prison. There was a video of the meeting where the demonstration was planned an officer who witnessed the meeting and testified about it apparently viewed the video. Petitioner made timely requests for the video, but it was never provided. The dissent argued the failure to retain and provide the video of the meeting required that the determination be annulled, but the majority confirmed the determination. This is from the dissent. The sergeant and the correction officer have described two distinctly different meetings one involving 12, the other 30 to 40 people. This discrepancy heightens the relevance of the video, as does the fact that the sergeant viewed the video and the hearing officer was uncertain whether that viewing occurred before or after the undefined retention period expired. Complicating matters, the hearing officer noted the three-week delay between the meeting and issuance and service of the misbehavior report on the petitioner. In a situation such as this, where there's an extended delay in issuing a misbehavior report, and the author of that report has in fact reviewed a video, it is incumbent upon the correctional facility to preserve that evidence. The failure to do so here compromised petitioner's due process right to a fair evidentiary hearing. That is particularly so in view of the sergeant's affirmative testimony as to what ostensibly happened in the E-yard on May 29, 2020. It is further evident that the hearing officer should have but failed to inquire further as to the existence of the video and the circumstances of its deletion. So the takeaway here, inmates subjected to disciplinary actions by prison authorities have due process rights. 
Here the dissent argued that the failure to preserve and provide a video of the meeting at which petitioner inmate allegedly planned a prison demonstration deprived him of his due process rights. The dissenter would have annulled the determination on that ground, but of course the majority confirmed the determination. Next is Matter of Stevens on pages 12 and 13 deals with a DNA issue, the so-called familial match, where DNA is matched to a family and not a particular member of that family. The First Department, reversing Supreme Court over uh, a full-fledged opinion by two dissenting justices, held the respondent agencies exceeded their regulatory powers when they authorized the release of so-called familial DNA information to be used as a possible lead for identifying the perpetrator of a crime. In the absence of a DNA match or a parcel match, a familial match may indicate the perpetrator has familial relationship with someone in the DNA database. A crucial threshold question was whether the petitioners, relatives of persons whose genetic profiles are in the New York State DNA database, had standing to contest the familial DNA regulations. The dissenters argued the petitioners did not have standing. The majority concluded the basis for the familial DNA regulations was primarily social policy, and therefore the regulations were legislative rather than administrative in nature. The court wrote, each petitioner's brother has genetic information stored in the DNA databank. Neither petitioner has been asked or mandated to provide DNA for comparison. Because they are law-abiding citizens, neither petitioner knows if they have been targeted for investigation as a result of the familial DNA match, but they harbor great concern and anxiety that they might be investigated for no other reason than that they share family genetics with a convicted criminal. We are not required to determine whether respondents made a good or beneficial policy decision. The fact that the decisions respondents made are by their very nature policy-driven greatly favors a conclusion that they were made in excess of respondents' authority. So the takeaways here. Relatives of persons in the New York State DNA database had standing to challenge the regulations issued by the respondent agencies allowing the release of familial DNA match information linking DNA from a crime scene to a family, not an individual. And the second takeaway, the familial DNA match regulations were found to be rooted in social policy, which is the realm of the legislature, and therefore the promulgation of the regulations exceeded the agency's powers. Next is People versus Rodriguez on pages 13 and 14. It's a court of appeals case dealing with an evidentiary issue. Here the issue was whether deleted texts were sufficiently authenticated to allow them to be admitted as evidence. The court of appeals, reversing the appellate division, held the trial court did not abuse its discretion when screenshots of text messages of a sexual nature allegedly sent by the defendant, a high school volleyball coach, to the 15-year-old victim, a player on the team. The victim had deleted the messages, but her boyfriend had taken screenshots of some of the messages 
and those screenshots were allowed in evidence. On appeal, the Second Department reversed the conviction on the ground that the screenshots had not been properly authenticated. The Court of Appeals wrote, Technologically generated documentation is ordinarily admissible under standard evidentiary rubrics, and this type of ruling may be disturbed by the court only when no legal foundation has been proffered or when an abuse of discretion as a matter of law is demonstrated. This court recently held that for digital photographs, like traditional photographs, the proper foundation may be established through testimony that the photograph accurately represents the subject matter depicted. We reiterated that rarely is it required that the identity and accuracy of a photograph be proved by the photographer, which would be the boyfriend here. Rather, any person having the requisite knowledge of the facts may verify the photograph or an expert may testify that the photograph has not been altered. Here, the testimony of the victim a participant in and witness to the conversations with defendant sufficed to authenticate the screenshots. She testified that all of the screenshots offered by the people fairly and accurately represented text messages sent to and from defendant's phone. The boyfriend also identified the screenshots as the same ones he took from the victim's phone. Telephone records of the call detail information for defendant's subscriber number corroborated that defendant sent the victim numerous text messages during the relevant time period. Even if we were to credit defendant's argument that the best evidence rule applies in this context, the court did not abuse its discretion in admitting the screenshots. So the takeaway here, text messages of a sexual nature were sent by the defendant, a volleyball coach, to a 15-year-old player on the team. The original messages were deleted but the victim's boyfriend had taken screenshots of some of those messages. The screenshots were deemed authenticated and admitted by the trial court. The second department reversed, applying the best evidence rule. The court of appeals reversed the second department, finding that even if the best evidence rule applied, the trial court did not abuse its discretion by finding the screenshots had been sufficiently authenticated. Next is People versus Devereaux on pages 14 and 15. It's another Court of Appeals case dealing with an evidentiary issue. Here the evidence excluded by the trial judge was deemed to have uh, taken away defendant's right to put on a defense. Court of Appeals, reversing the appellate division in this murder case, held evidentiary rulings excluding evidence which impeached an important witness and 911 calls admissible as present sense impressions deprived defendant of his right to present a defense. R.M. was a crucial prosecution witness. R.M. claimed to have been with his girlfriend, R.J., right up until the time of the shooting, but R.J. would have testified she was not with R.M. that day. So the court wrote, R.J.'s proffered testimony was probative of R.M.'s ability to observe and recall details of the shooting. At trial, R.M. testified that he was with R.J. until seconds before he witnessed the shooting and that he was at the scene to walk R.J. home. 
Upon the people's questioning, R.M. explained in detail his relationship with R.J., resulting in many pages of testimony as to where he met up with her that evening, the amount of time they spent together, and when they parted ways. This testimony, introduced and relied upon by the people, made R.J. an integral part of R.M.'s account of why he was in a position to witness the shooting and placed her with him mere seconds before it occurred. Since the people's own theory of the case placed R.J. on the scene the instant before the shooting, her testimony cannot be char characterized as collateral. The court also erred in excluding three 911 calls. The calls were admissible as present sense impressions. The present sense impression exception to the hearsay rule applies to statements that are one, made by a person perceiving the event as it is unfolding or immediately afterward, and two, corroborated by independent evidence establishing the reliability of the contents of the statement. Descriptions of events made by a person who is perceiving the event as it is unfolding are deemed reliable because the contemporaneity of the communication minimizes the opportunity for calculated misstatement as well as the risk of inaccuracy from faulty memory. So the takeaway here, here an important prosecution witness claimed he was with his girlfriend right up until seconds before the shooting he allegedly witnessed. The girlfriend's testimony that she was not with the witness that day should not have been excluded as collateral because it called into question the witness's claim that he was able to observe the shooting. In addition, three 911 calls which qualified as present sense impressions should not have been excluded. The Court of Appeals held that these evidentiary errors deprived defendant of his right to put on a defense. Next is People v. Mitchell on page 16. It's another Court of Appeals case, and it deals with the elements of a crime called fraudulent accosting. The Court of Appeals, over an extensive three-judge dissent, held the accusatory instrument charging defendant with fraudulent accosting was facially sufficient. Defendants set up a couple of milk crates as a table in the sidewalk and asked people for donations to the homeless as they walked around the table. Defendant unsuccessfully argued the term accost required an element of aggressiveness or persistence directed toward an individual. The court said, A person is guilty of fraudulent accosting when he or she accosts a person in a public space with intent to defraud him of money or other property by means of a trick, swindle, or confidence game. That's Penal Law Section 165.30, Subdivision 1. During the relevant period in 1952 when the legislature created the offense of fraudulent accosting, contemporary dictionaries defined accost to mean either to approach, to speak to first, or to address. No dictionary cited from the relevant time period limits the term to an aggressive or persistent physical approach. So the takeaway here, to determine the meaning of the word accost as used in the fraudulent accosting statute, the Court of Appeals referred only to the definitions of the word in dictionaries that existed in 1952 when the statute was enacted and ignored more recent definitions. Next is People versus Samaru. 
S-A-M-A-R-O-O, on page 17. It deals with the consequence of the defense attorney failing to explain the deportation consequences to a, a defendant's guilty plea. The second department, reversing Supreme Court, held defendant should have been afforded a hearing on his motion to vacate his conviction on ineffective assistance grounds. Defendant alleged he was misadvised on the deportation consequences of his guilty plea. The court wrote, neither the fact that the that the defendant had previously been convicted of an offense that may subject him to removal, nor the seemingly strong evidence against him with respect to the instant offense, nor the favorable plea bargain he received, necessarily requires a finding that the defendant was not prejudiced by his counsel's misadvice. The defendant's averments, including that he has resided in the United States since he was 10, that he is married to his spouse with whom he has two minor children, that his spouse is unable to work due to a medical condition, that he is gainfully employed, and that he is the sole source of financial support to his family, sufficiently alleged that a decision to reject the plea offer would have been rational. So the takeaway here, even if evidence of defendant's commission of the crime is strong, a defendant may demonstrate a decision to go to trial rather than accept a plea offer would have been rational based upon family obligations. Here, the defendant, who is a legal resident and has lived in the U.S. since he was 10, has two minor children, is employed, and his wife can't work because of medical problems. Defendant brought a motion to vacate his conviction, which was by guilty plea, on the ground his attorney did not inform him of the deportation consequences of the plea. The defendant was, in, was entitled to a hearing on his motion. Next is People v. Garcia on pages 18 and 19. It's another Court of Appeals case, and it deals with the right to trial on a B misdemeanor. The Court of Appeals, over an extensive two-judge dissent, held that the defendant did not demonstrate the misdemeanors with which he was charged triggered a right to a jury trial because conviction would result in deportation. The court wrote, Defendant was originally charged with public lewdness, two counts of forcible touching, and two counts of sexual abuse in the third degree, after police officers observed him masturbating on a subway platform and pressing himself against two women on a subway car. The people thereafter filed a prosecutor's information reducing the two Class A misdemeanor charges of forcible touching to attempted forcible touching so that the top charges against defendant were Class B misdemeanors, obviating his right to a jury trial under the state statute. After a bench trial, defendant was convicted of public lewdness and acquitted of all the other charges. While the appellate term first improperly conducted the, de the deportability analysis based only on the crime of conviction, that court went on to correctly analyze defendant's deportability based on all the charges he faced. It remained, however, the defendant's burden to overcome the presumption that the crime charged is petty and establish a Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial. Defendant's conclusory allegation that he was deportable if convicted on any of the charged B misdemeanors, supported by a bare citation to a federal statute, 
under which an alien is deportable if convicted of two or more crimes involving moral turpitude, not arising out of a single scheme of criminal misconduct, was insufficient to establish his right to a jury trial. So the takeaway here, generally B misdemeanors do not warrant a jury as opposed to a bench trial. However, if conviction will result in deportation, the defendant has a right to a jury trial. Here the Court of Appeals held the defendant did not demonstrate conviction of the B misdemeanors with which he was charged triggered deportation. Next is People v. Bloom, pages 19 and 20. The issue here is a jurisdictionally defective count of an indictment and an unsuccessful attempt to amend the indictment. And there's a Sandoval ruling issue as well. The Second Department dismissed a jurisdictionally defective count of the indictment, held the people's attempt to amend that count was not authorized, held that certain Sandoval evidence should not have been admitted, but deemed the Sandoval error harmless and upheld defendants' convictions on the other counts. The court wrote, Count one of the indictment alleged that in the course of effecting entry into said dwelling, the defendant was armed with a dangerous weapon, a knife. Inasmuch as the offense of burglary in the first degree requires that the defendant be armed with a deadly weapon, a term which is specifically defined in Penal Law Section 10, Subdivision 12, and which definition includes only certain specified knives, count one of the indictment was jurisdictionally defective because it failed to effectively charge the defendant with the commission of the crime. Criminal Procedure Law 200.70, Subdivision 2A, prohibits any amendment of an indictment when the amendment is needed to cure a failure to charge or state an offense. Turning to the Sandoval issue, the court wrote, Although questioning concerning other crimes is not automatically precluded simply because the crimes to be inquired about are similar to the crimes charged, cross-examination with respect to crimes or conduct similar to that of which the defendant is presently charged may be highly prejudicial in view of the risk, despite the most clear and forceful limiting instructions to the contrary, that the evidence will be taken as some proof of the commission of the crime charged rather than be reserved solely to the issue of credibility. But again, the uh, second department found that this the Sandoval error was harmless. So the takeaway here, only certain knives meet the definition of deadly weapon as used in the burglary first statute. Therefore, the count which alleged defendant was armed with a knife did not allege burglary first and was jurisdictionally defective. A count which does not state an offense cannot be amended pursuant to Criminal Procedure Law 200.70. And the Sandoval ruling, which allowed defendant to be cross-examined about crimes similar to those with which he was charged, was deemed error, but it was also deemed harmless. Next is People versus Rodriguez on pages 21 and 22, and the case explains what a repugnant verdict is. The second department vacated defendant's robbery second and grand larceny fourth convictions as repugnant to the acquittal of unauthorized use of a vehicle. The court wrote, 
The defendant was charged with various crimes arising from an incident during which the defendant, a co-defendant, and a third perpetrator who was never apprehended robbed the complainant, a cab driver, at knife point. The jury convicted the defendant of robbery in the first degree, robbery in the second degree, grand larceny in the fourth degree, and menacing in the second degree, and acquitted him of unauthorized use of a vehicle in the third degree. A verdict is repugnant when evalu evaluated only in terms of the elements of the crimes as charged to the jury and without regard to the evidence as to what actually occurred, acquittal on one count necessarily negates an element of a crime of which the defendant was convicted. Here, as the crimes were charged to the jury, the acquittal on the charge of unauthorized use of a vehicle in the third degree rendered repugnant the convictions of robbery in the second degree and grand larceny in the fourth degree. So the takeaway here, it's a rare example of a repugnant verdict requiring vacation of convictions. The facts are not explained. The second department held the acquittal of unauthorized use of a vehicle rendered the robbery and grand larceny convictions repugnant. Presumably, the charges stemmed from the theft of the vehicle. Next is People v. Jensen on pages 22 and 23. Uh, it deals with when a hearing to determine the amount of restitution is required. Second Department, reversing county court, held because the defendant objected to the restitution amount, a hearing to determine the amount was required. The court wrote, before a defendant may be directed to pay restitution, a hearing must be held if either, one, the defendant objects to the amount of restitution and the record is insufficient to establish the proper amount, or two, the defendant requests a hearing. Here, the defendant objected to the amount of restitution payable to the complainant and the record was insufficient to establish the value of damages to the complainant's property in the amount of $7,630. So the takeaway here, where a defendant objects to the amount of restitution and the record is insufficient to establish the proper amount, a hearing must be held. Next is People versus Robinson, pages 23 and 24, and it deals with the pre procedure for determining whether an out-of-state conviction is the equivalent of a New York conviction and therefore could serve as a predicate for second felony offender status. Second Department, reversing Supreme Court, ruled a hearing was required to determine whether defendant's Connecticut conviction could serve as a predicate offense for second felony offender status. The issue was not preserved and was considered in the interest of justice. The court wrote, Although the defendant did not preserve for appellate review the issue of whether he was properly sentenced as a second felony offender, we reached that issue in the exercise of our interest of justice jurisdiction. The defendant's prior conviction in Connecticut was for larceny in the first degree under Connecticut General Statutes Section 53A-122, Subdivision A. This statute defined grand larceny differently under several subdivisions, not all of which are felonies under New York law. 
to determine which subdivision applied to this defendant, the Supreme Court could have looked at the Connecticut accusatory instrument to determine the subdivision of the Connecticut statute under which the defendant was convicted. However, the Connecticut accusatory instrument is not in the record. Accordingly, in the interest of justice, we vacate the defendant's adjudication as a second felony offender and the sentence imposed and remit the matter to the Supreme Court, Queens County, for a second felony offender hearing and for resentencing thereafter. So the takeaway here, portions of the Connecticut larceny statute were equivalent to a New York felony and other portions were not. Therefore, whether the Connecticut conviction could serve as a predicate for second felony offender status cannot be determined without examining the Connecticut accusatory instrument. The issue wasn't preserved for appeal, but was considered in the interest of justice and the matter was remitted for a hearing. Next is People versus Cisneros, which is on page 24, Sex Offender Registration Act case, First Department, reversing Supreme Court, held the Bronx County SORA proceeding, that's a Sex Offender Registration Act proceeding, should have been dismissed because New York County had entered a sex offender level adjudication based on the defendant's conduct in both counties. The court wrote, the proceeding in Bronx County should have been dismissed on defendant's motion where Supreme Court New York County had entered a sex offender level adjudication based on the defendant's criminal conduct in both counties which constituted the current offenses under the risk assessment instrument. So the takeaway, the same conduct in two counties will not support more than one SORA sex offender level adjudication. Next is People v. Miranda on page 25. It's another Sex Offender Registration Act case, Second Department, reversing Supreme Court, held the crime for which defendant was convicted at the time of its commission in 2007 was not a registrable offense under the Sex Offender Registration Act, or SORA. Therefore, defendant's motion to seal the record should not have been summarily denied. The matter was remitted for a hearing. The court wrote, at the time of defendant's conviction for attempted promoting prostitution in the third degree, the definition of sex offense in Correction Law Section 168A, Subdivision 2, did not include convictions of an attempt to commit that crime. Defendant has never been required to register under SORA for this conviction. Accordingly, under the plain language of the statute, the defendant has not been convicted of an offense for which registration as a sex offender is required. So the takeaway here, if an offense is now a registrable offense pursuant to the Sex Offender Registration Act, but was not a registrable offense when committed here in 2007, a defendant's motion to seal the record cannot be summarily denied. The motion may still be denied after a hearing, however. Next is the last case in the May 2022 Criminal Law Reversal Report, People v. Gomez, pages 26 and 27. It deals with two issues, whether there was probable cause for the stop of the taxi in which defendant was a passenger, and whether a promise of concurrent sentences required the all 
convictions to be reversed. The second department, reversing defendants' convictions by guilty pleas, held the police officer who stopped the taxi in which defendant was a passenger did not have probable cause to believe defendant had committed a crime. Because the defendant pled guilty to several offenses based upon a promise of concurrent sentences, all convictions were reversed. The court wrote, Upon our evaluation of the totality of the circumstances, we conclude that at the time the police officer stopped the taxi in which the defendant was a passenger, the officer lacked reasonable suspicion to believe that the defendant had committed a crime. The stop was based merely on the report of an identified citizen made 40 minutes after the fight had occurred that the neighbor with whom she was talking to on the phone was presently observing the defendant getting into a black taxi on the block where the fight occurred. There was no evidence that the informant or the neighbor saw the fight, and the neighbor who testified at the hearing did not state that she knew that the defendant was involved in the fight. The police officer who stopped the taxi admitted that when he made the stop, he did not know whether the defendant was a victim, a perpetrator, or involved in anything. Under these circumstances, the gun recovered by that officer upon the vehicle stop should have been suppressed. The defendant correctly contends that the judgments relating to the drug cases also must be reversed inasmuch as his pleas of guilty to those cases were premised on the promise of sentences that would run concurrently with the sentence imposed on the weapon possession charge. So the takeaway here, one of the charges to which defendant pled guilty was overturned because the police did not have probable cause to make a vehicle stop. The guilty pleas to all the charges were reversed because, the promise, because of the promise the sentences would run concurrently with the sentence for the overturned conviction. That concludes part two of this April-May-June 2022 criminal law update CLE. Part two was based on the criminal law reversal report from May 2022. We're moving on to part three, which is based on the June 2022 criminal law reversal report.